it's challenging. It's a really challenging space and probably in most instances, I'm trying to back enthusiastic coaches and athletes back off of uh, using too many gadgets and metrics and creating too much noise and rather just focusing on you know, two or three or maybe three or four really key things that you want to answer your question. Hello and welcome to the Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Steph Gaskell. And I'm Alan McCubbin. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. We are also both researchers in sports nutrition at Monash University and we love translating the often complex science of sports nutrition into simple and practical strategies. Each week we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask. Um, so stuff you talk about on your long ride or run or it might be post-workout session when you're um, digging into something delicious at the cafe. So we're going to break it down um, into a nice, um, simple, um, I guess, question. Uh, and that's where we tend to have a part A where we'll have a guest expert um, or researcher to answer that question. And then we'll follow that up with a part B, which is either going to be usually an athlete or a um, coach um, to give more of a practical perspective. So how are you, Dr. Alan McCubbin? I'm all right. Thanks, Steph. Um, yeah, unfortunately, we said last week I was counting down the week until the kids were back at school. Unfortunately, one of my kids has to have a tooth extracted and now we're in our five days of isolation before he goes into theatre to have it extracted. So unfortunately, one more week still before they get back to school. But, you know, that's life. What can you do? <laughs> Got to roll with the uh, roll with it, don't you, right now? Exactly right. Yes. Mm. So counting down the days till next week now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm, how about you? Uh, yeah, I'm going good. I've got um, final review hour, which I'm, as you've known, uh, I'm getting quite nervous about. Um, but yeah, that's that's this week. Um, so this is for so your be, PhD final yeah, milestone yes. review, where they check that you're all on track to finish up. Exactly, exactly, um, and maybe throw some curveball questions at me. So that always makes me a little bit nervous. Yeah, no, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, otherwise I've been headed out the last couple of weekends to Warburton, um, yeah, nice. you know, going out there, doing some runs. I love Redwood Forest, um, mm. you know, sat in the creek, um, it was a bit cold, um, but yeah, it's just a stunning place. Oh, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Oh. And they're actually scoping out to build one of the biggest, um, mountain bike networks in Victoria, oh. just in the hills around Warburton as well. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Awesome spot. Um, so today's episode, this is uh, an exciting one. Our, we've been looking forward to it for a, a long time, maybe even close to a year. We've um, held on for this one. Yeah, that's right. So it's episode 30A today. And our question is, how can I use my training data to help my nutrition? And our special guest is Dr. Trent Stellingworth from the Canadian Sports Institute. Uh, over in Victoria, Canada. So, yeah, really looking forward to speaking to Trent. Mm, can't wait. Mm.
before we get stuck into this one though, just um, we've got social media shout outs and, and questions. Um, so yeah, we've got lots of love for the new Twitter threads and Instagram infographics um, on balancing fueling for training and um, body fat loss. Uh, so yeah, it's um, our you're fantastic at, at all of that at all of that stuff. Um, so I just do a little bit of um, a little bit of additions, but you're the main guy there. So most of the thanks need to go to go to you. Um, but yeah, just with our um, shout outs for Instagram. Yeah, yeah, we had some shout outs from Instagram around those infographics. So Ryan Shand over in Perth, who's uh, conversed with us quite a bit over social yeah. media, he said great infographics, loved the episode. And so that was the one that we did, um, or this was after the one we did by ourselves. I think we didn't have time to uh, include that in our uh, intro for, for last week's episode. But mm. um, yeah, so I enjoyed that one where we were talking about th- that particular topic. Um, and also Scooter got in touch and said such a great br- breakdown top stuff. So thank you, Scooter. Uh, and then we obviously had last week's episode with Neil Vanderplug looking at, I guess, how he did that in terms of his cycling and the lead up to the Road National Championships. And um, Gordon Knight, uh, when he saw the preview for that go up on Instagram, said he needs this episode. So hopefully it was useful for you, Gordon. Uh, and Alison Higgins also fed back that she listened to that one and, and really enjoyed it as well, which is great. Yeah. Um, and we also had, um, I think it's... Oh, Apologies if I don't pronounce this right. Diego Alder um, contacted us via Instagram, said, hey, team, he's been listening to the podcast since uh, Kate Perry was on as a guest late last year, who's a friend of his. Um, Good stuff. So important to bring awareness and education around sports nutrition, specifically for endurance sports, where sadly we tend to find many ideas and a lot of confusion, which is pretty much the reason why we started this podcast Mm -hmm. in the first place, Steph. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, We also got contacted via Facebook from Jonathan, who got in touch around our episode on exercise-associated hyponatremia, which is a few months back now. So people are still listening to the back catalogue. He was asking around non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and whether they increase the risk of of developing hyponatremia. Um, So I guess when it comes to non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, obviously there is interactions with things that have a nutrition aspect to them. But we're talking about pharmaceuticals then. So that's not really our area of expertise or within our scope of qualification to really make too much comment about that. So that's more for a a medical doctor, a physician to, to discuss. Um, So yeah, we'll, we'll bow out of that one. Um, But uh, yes, so uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory is obviously a bit of a problem uh, for a a number of things, not just hyponatremia, um, particularly in your area of research, Steph, around gastrointestinal issues as well. But uh, Mm. That's a story for another day. It is. Mm. Uh, And then on Apple Podcasts, we've had a couple of new five-star ratings. So thank you for whoever left those. Of course, they're anonymous. Uh, And we also had one new review on Apple Podcasts as well. Um, Now, I don't know how to pronounce this. Sometimes the user names are a a bit Mm. unusual. Um, I'm guessing this would be Yippee234. Um, But it it could be Yip, I'm not not really sure, but um, (laughs) said, top show, wish I'd found your show 10 years ago. So many questions I've struggled with in the past. So Mm. thanks so much for the review. And um, again, you know, Mm. I think that was really uh, the motivation for us was to build the show around common nutrition questions that people ask Mm. to make it really practical and and helpful for people. So um, great to get that feedback. And um, yeah, any any other feedback? Please um, 
yeah, send us any questions or, yeah, constructive feedback that you have on our social media um, at The Long Munch. So you've got Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, so, yeah, um, please get in touch with us there. Yep. Okay, so today's episode, Steph, as we said, episode 30A, How Can I Use My Training Data to Help My Nutrition with Dr. Trent Stellingworth. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Trent before we get stuck into this one? Yeah, so, um, wow, um, I get nervous when I speak to Trent just because of everything he's he's achieved. Um, so Dr. Trent Stellingworth, uh, he's, he is a senior advisor um, in innovation and research at the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific. And his role basically is helping direct several different research projects um, across different sport performance um, discipline areas. He's got, um, yeah, looking after master's, PhD and postdoc um, students. And he's also in the sports science, sports medicine and innovation lead for, I think, Athletics Canada, but that might have changed um, recently. Um, so yeah, his primary, I guess, sport and research focuses are in the field of physiology and nutrition, um, interactions, as well as in the environmental, um, aspect as well. So altitude and heat, and he's previously served on, um, own the podium's national, um, advisory council. Um, and he currently co-chairs, own the podium's relative energy deficiency in sport um, working group. So he's just got a wealth of, of um, knowledge. He's written more than 100 peer-reviewed scientific publications, authored, you know, 10 book chapters, and it's probably more, um, all in the areas of exercise physiology, skeletal muscle metabolism, sports nutrition and performance. And as we know, um, he loves, he love, love, loves data um, you know, how to collect it, um, what's it telling you, how reliable is it, um, and how, more importantly, you know, is it useful um, for the athlete in helping to um, improve their performance or help out with the with their health. Um, so we thought of no one better than to ask Trent to, to join us, and we we're very lucky um, for him to say yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's one of those few people that sort of combines uh, the research and academic aspect with the practice as a physiologist and a coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as we hear in this interview, has a background in, in running himself and his wife mm-hmm. uh, is a two-time Olympian in 1500 metres on the track as well. So yeah. uh, he sort of comes at it from all the different angles, which is, I guess, what makes him so uh, uniquely placed to be able to help us answer this question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So our discussion with Trent today, I guess, really focuses a lot on the considerations around capturing data and, and the quality of, of data that we capture. Um, so just a, a bit of a um, pretext for that. There's a, a few terms that we'll talk a little bit about during this interview. Uh, one is the concept of validity. And that's basically, you know, the thing that you're measuring or, or the, the technique that you're using to measure it. Is it measuring what it's supposed to be measuring? So, um, you know, if you're trying to measure, let's say, power with a power meter on a bike. We know that mm-hmm. that's a valid measure of measuring power output through the cranks. 
But if you were to, I don't know, use some sort of video analysis of people's leg movements, for example, <laughs> to estimate how much power they were putting out, um, we would probably say that's not a valid way of doing it because you couldn't estimate how much power someone's putting out by looking at their legs yeah. um, in a video. So that's an example of validity. Reliability, I guess, is how consistently it's going to measure the same the, the same thing each time. So um, there's a few different ways that you can think of reliability. Sometimes, for example, with skinfold measurements is probably a good example of this. You can have two different people measure skinfolds on the same person. Um, and depending on how well qualified and skilled those people are, um, they might get very consistent readings between the two of them or very inconsistent readings. And that's, so that's a measure of what we call inter-rater reliability, the difference between the two people doing the measuring. Um, but you can also have reliability from one day to the next. So if you measure the same thing two days in a row, are you going to get the same result? Um, because is the equipment good enough to be able to do that? So that's reliability. And then sensitivity, you know, how small um, differences can it reliably detect? Um, so sometimes you can have something that that might measure or anything really a data point but the the differences that it can reliably pick up are so big that they're beyond what's meaningful anyway so you're looking for small changes and it just can't go to that level of sensitivity so validity reliability and sensitivity are all really important things when we're trying to capture data um, to to work out whether that data is one going to be accurate two reflects what we're trying to measure um, and three is um, you know detailed enough that it's telling us something useful so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about those terms, particularly the validity term, um, but also um, the conversation is, I guess, reasonably high level in terms of talking about the, the concepts of data collection and interpretation. Um, and we'll finish off in our outro with a little bit more around some of the practical discussion of how uh, you and I, Steph, personally use um, data with the athletes that we work with as well and um, some of the use cases of where this data might be particularly useful. Awesome. All right, let's get into this one with Dr. Trent Stellingworth. Let's do it. Trent Stellingworth, welcome to the Long Munch podcast. Thanks for having me on. Um, I know it took a while for us to figure out our schedule, so I appreciate your patience. Yeah, no. oh, thanks for um, saying yes. We we weren't going to give up on you. <laughs> yeah. the, been... Olympic, the delayed COVID Olympic year was a little crazy last year for me to fit in much outside of work. So um, yeah. yeah, January is much better. Awesome. So our um, our topic today, the question is, how can my training data help my nutrition? Um, and Alan and I honestly couldn't think of anyone better than to um, talk to you about this um, and I know our listeners are really excited to, to hear this one. Um, so you've you've been in, involved in sport from lots of different angles throughout your career so as a researcher, a physiologist um, with a particular interest in nutrition um, and um, as a husband and as a coach um, how did all these kind of different pieces all come together for you? And, and did you also have a particular background in, in sport yourself? Yeah, I guess um, obviously there's a combination of pursuits there. Um, I think they're all synergistic and they all add value to each other. And I'm a classic example of um, hopefully uh, a master of a few of them. I desperately try to hang on to expertise in a few of those buckets. Um, and not spread myself uh, too thin. And it 
it has been an interesting journey. Uh, I was a national class middle distance runner uh, 20, 25 years ago. And in Canada, I got a scholarship to go to the United States and run track in the NCAA school at Cornell University. And it was actually at Cornell that um, I majored, uh, had a major in nutrition and a minor in exercise uh, physiology. And um, I could see directly the benefit of the stuff I was learning in school that I could apply to me directly in my pursuit of my own running career. And that that really excited me. And at my tail end of Cornell, I got involved with research and a research project, and it was actually more mechanistic um, cancer cells, but it, it was vitamin E research at the time in cancer cells. Mm-hmm. Um, I really was interested in research, but not in cells. So um, I wanted to switch to humans um, and more applied research and ended up at Guelph with Lawrence Spree and then McMaster with Luke Van Loon. And so was able to work with some really um, outstanding researchers. And um, I think my first first author publication was a, um, a study, uh, a collaboration with Luis Burke um, way back on a five-day keto diet <laughs> with muscle biopsies and how it impacts carbohydrate oxidation and downregulates the uh, enzymes involved in energy production and carbohydrate pathways. And uh, little did I know as a PhD student how important that collaboration would be. And and I'm, I'm really gracious that I have such uh, great mentors over my career. We spoke about yes. that study actually with Louise on our very first podcast episode. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and how do you describe your role now at the um, Canadian Sports Institute? I think your official title is Director of Innovation and Research. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but do you still get to do kind of the, the direct day-to-day work with athletes as well? Yeah, so up until December, I, I was both research and development lead, but also the sports science, sports medicine uh director for athletics Canada, the governing body of track and field. Yep. And that was part of the uh, multiple hats and probably in a non-sustainable work situation there mm-hmm. for a while. Um, and so I mainly worked in athletics. Uh, I was primarily a physiologist with our um, Canadian Olympic and Paralympic track and field teams, but integrated research into what we did. Um, and a lot of the publications over those years have featured training camp data and from altitude or iron research or other elements that we were, um, that we were working on. Uh, I now have less direct involvement with athletics Canada. I'm still on just one day a week. And then I have four days a week to primarily drive our uh, research and development um, aspects through the Canadian sport Institute. We have three campuses, Victoria and then Vancouver and Whistler. So winter innovation, summer innovation, mm. Um, and, uh, lots of collaborations with the local universities as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, so I guess like right now you're, you're working with a range of different sports. There's, there's not kind of one particular one that you're spending majority of your time in. Yeah. I'm in an awesome position in my career that I get to work and mentor some of our junior staff across other sports. So, Mm. Last week, I was uh, in helping Rowing Canada, the national team program, and their testing that they were doing in the lab last week. Um, next week, I have a meeting with the physiologist and with Triathlon Canada. And then 
I have a postdoc, uh, Dr. Ida Haikura, who does research in relative mm-hmm. energy deficiency in sport, yeah. where we have a large project testing across, um, well, all of our national and provincial team programs. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I, it's really awesome that I get to span across sports and learn a ton from mm-hmm. the different approaches and what the different limitations and challenges or opportunities are in each of those sports. Yeah. Yep. Is there a sport that you kind of favor? Like, is it is it in middle distance running because you come from that background and I know your wife, Hillary, does? Yeah, I would say yes. Like, uh, my wife is a multi-time Olympian or was uh, in women's 1500 and um, she's now uh, retired and coaching at the local university. Um, but I would also say that I just gravitate towards um, any and all of the middle distance power-based sports. And so I was a physiology lead um, up until the 2012 Olympics for Rowing Canada. And I just am really intrigued by both the aerobic and anaerobic aspects as as large as a large biomechanical performance determinant in, in a lot of those sports and the the large diversity of athletes that you get over sport durations of, you know, that two minutes to 10 minutes. There are so many ways that you can approach performance um, in that anaerobic power-based space that it adds a lot of complexity and a lot of diversity, but I think you can be really creative and, um, uh, and really successful, but it, it takes a lot of thinking. So I, I really mm. like that, that space and working in, in that space. So it could be track cycling or some of the swimming events or rowing or, or middle distance on the, on in athletics as well. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Um, so as Steph mentioned before, our topic today is, I guess, how training data might help inform our nutrition. And I guess there's so much data that athletes can collect these days. I mean, if we think back to, you know, running, you know, say Roger Bannister's time or, you know, cycling Eddie Merck's time, there was very limited data that they could collect. And now you can data point just about everything, uh, whether it's through, you know, wearable devices, whether it's apps that you can log bits and pieces on, if it's lab-based data, GPS tracking, heart rate monitors, power meters, the, the works, and, you know, all sorts of platforms you can upload them to. Um, it's become obviously a bit of a minefield to navigate, which I think is why it causes a lot of confusion for people, both you know, elite athletes, although they get a lot more support to help navigate that, and then more recreational athletes that are collecting all this stuff and don't necessarily know what to do with it. Um, firstly, I guess, for, from your time working in sport, how have you seen the changes, I guess, in athlete data collection throughout your time working in sports like running, cycling, triathlon? Yeah, so f- first, I know you said uh, you're excited to have me on in this topic, but the topic's scary for me too. Like, it, uh, <laughs> this is going to be a challenging discussion, and I don't think anyone has all the answers because mm. it's it's complex. So. Uh, Maybe I should have put that right out there at the start. But uh, so I do agree. There's been a big evolution in data, even in my career. I don't think of myself as that old yet. But I think, first of all, historically, like as a theme, the most of the equipment and methods or gadgets that we used to generate uh, information in nutrition, they mainly came from exercise physiologists at universities. And... Um, a lot of those exercise physiologists were then interested in sports nutrition or aspects of sports nutrition. But a lot of those measurements and validated outcomes such as metabolic hearts or resting metabolic rates or studies like glycogen or caffeine, they were all, again, exercise physiologists based at universities where 
they could take their time to develop methods and validate methods mm. slowly and systematically over years and over decades. But most of that has been kind of laboratory based, probably a step away from, from the field. And certainly it, more recently, there's been a massive shift in equipment and methods that can produce exercise or performance or nutrition-based metrics, both validated or not validated whatsoever, much more towards open field-based work um, and commercialized companies taking the charge in most of the method and gadget development versus the universities in, in bygone eras. And so this has resulted in a very exciting time, but also... Uh, situations that has far outstripped the scientific community's ability to validate most of these commercialized products and apps. And so, you know, there are things like wattage meters or I'm thinking uh, mu muscle oxygen saturation that, uh, that ha do have various software solutions that are validated or semi-validated, but there's a whole bunch of stuff and apps and different devices that, um, that are not validated. And so the, the field has really shifted into a place that's um, both exciting, has a lot of future and promise, but also um, absolutely riddled with landmines and, and, and buyer beware types of scenarios. So um, for sure, I've seen an evolution in the way the data is collected and used. Uh, even the idea that athletes and coaches can much more easily share data, like just think something as simple as a Google Doc or a Dropbox didn't mm. exist 15 years ago. Like that, like that, that, we use that all the time now and sharing files and having software um, uh, companies being able to upload files um, and, and integrated systems collecting a whole range of biometric data. So from, from heart rate to wind data to physiology to, to weather to emotional states and biomechanics can all be integrated. And it, it's exciting, but it can also be completely and utterly overwhelming um, depending where you are in your journey on these metrics. And certainly a, probably one of the biggest mistakes I made as a practitioner early on in my career was coming in with an older coach who, who was really established, knew knew what he needed to see, but probably overwhelming that coach with too many new things all at once, instead of just being strategic and saying, Hey, let's try this one new thing for the next three or four months and just see how it goes Yeah. rather than five new things. And, and, and you can't make heads or tails of it because there's just too much noise going on. So that's the, that, that was a huge question. So that was a long <laughs> answer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the, the interesting things you're talking about there was the fact that, you know, with lab, um, validation of things, which I guess is, you know, pre probably 2000-ish when a lot of sort of consumable, you know, wearables and apps and things came about, you know, a lot of that was, yeah, as you said, done over a longer period of time. And the trouble we have now is, as you said, one, there's so many things that you can't possibly validate them all. But two, you know, everything is iterated on, you know, by the time you've validated this year's model kicker, the next one's out. And so all of a sudden you publish this paper and it's already out of date by the time it's published because you know, the process of science takes time. Um, and so that adds a, an, an extra challenge, I guess, to, to validating some of this stuff, even if we pick the ones that we want to look at more closely. You, you accelerate into quasi-validation mm. and um, it, so you might wear multiple devices at once just to just to get a sense like is this even moving in the right direction um 
yeah, it's, it's challenging. It's a really challenging space. And probably in most instances, I'm trying to back, um, enthusiastic coaches and athletes. I mean, I think we'll get into this more in a bit back off of, uh, using too many gadgets and metrics and creating too much noise and rather just focusing on, you know, two or three or maybe three or four really key things that you want to answer your question. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, and and so talking about that quasi validation, I guess if something new or fancy comes along that you've got like either your athletes or your coaches are coming to you and saying, Oh, Trent, you know, there's this new thing, you know, we really want to use it. How do we use it? Et cetera, et cetera. What's the, I guess, the approach that you would go through or the thought process in terms of trying to work out, well, is this worth looking at? Is it worth incorporating into what we're already doing? Yeah, so that does happen more and more often and it's never going to go away. And so first and foremost, I think never dismiss an athlete or coach who's coming to you with new ideas. Mm. Always try to sit down, engage with them openly, understand their reason for bringing this forward. Uh, really unpack it with them. Um, what are they specifically looking to answer? Um, I usually work through and talk about their reasons and desires for new products. Um, but then also, if you've got a strong relationship, hopefully you can talk through some of the risk and rewards of just any new technology. Mm. Um, uh, usually I'll say, can you give me a chance to, to do a little bit of homework and let's meet next week. Mm. And, uh, Honestly, and I was going to mention this earlier, uh, there's, you know, there's a guy out there, DC Rainmaker, his website's mm. unbelievable. And he does quasi validation all the time. Yeah. And it's not full scientific validation, but man, can you get at least a snapshot, a really strong snapshot of what you're dealing with uh, on new technology, just, just by going through his website. And, um, and he does an impressive job at keeping up. Uh, to, to new technology that is exercise and sport-based. Um, I'll usually reach out to my network to sense check things and then obviously look at the um, published literature as well. Um, I'll usually come back and if they're still really convinced that they want to try something that maybe I'm less convinced about, as long as there's, you know, do no harm, um, I might say, okay, let, let's try a short trial period. But if there's a way that we could um, add other devices onto you, uh, at the concurrently, um, all I'm trying to do is to show them that there's incredible noise amongst all the different devices on a lot of these outcomes, whether it's sleep monitoring or HRV or recovery scales or whatever, uh, you know, whatever the device is measuring. And so they can really see firsthand, you know, I'm like, send me the wrong da- raw data file and I'll, you can look at the different, um, outcomes and the different variability and the different results. Um, a few years ago, Dave Martin, who was at the Australian Institute of Sport, um, up until what, eight or nine years ago, wrote a really nice piece in the Gatorade Sports Science Institute, the uh, Sports Science Exchange. Um, I think it was titled uh, Evidence-Based Practice. And he had a diagram in there where he talked about the integration of new technology, the new ideas, where it might have low or high scientific support off on one angle and across the top it had either low or high belief effect effect. So how much the coach or athlete is believing in it versus the scientific support. And I'd highlight that paper to just go have a read of any practitioner to, to really think about where there's high risk or um, uh, with low reward versus maybe there's times that there's higher risk and higher reward. 
but it really depends on what the technology is that you're bringing forward. For example, um, if it's, you know, some element of a recovery device and they want to implement it early on in a training block just to see what it says, that's a different discussion than using, uh, say, indirect core temperature monitor with athletes in a heat chamber. Because if that's off half a degree and you're pushing athletes to 40 Celsius, half a degree matters a lot. Mm. Yeah. And, and so it, it, it depends really what the risk reward continuum is on, on what you're measuring and what, what the question is. Yeah. Yep, uh, that makes sense. Um, now, obviously, you work primarily with uh, elite athletes. Uh, are you seeing a trend at that level towards athletes collecting more and, and different types of data or, or changing maybe the types of data they're collecting? Or are they tending to stick to kind of tried and true methods that have been used over sort of a number of years and kind of, um, I guess, filtering out or, or blocking out those sort of new, exciting, trendy products that come along or, or apps or whatever it is? Yeah, I, I think it depends a bit on the culture of the sport and the individual within each sport and their um, interest in numbers and metrics, whether they're they're more minded that way or they're, they're a little more uh, organic in their approach to their sport. And I would say in some instances, I would actually say, you know, the, the executive cycling culture. Uh, rather than golf, the, you know, the mm. same cycling as the new golf is probably I've seen more overuse of data and metrics and gadgets. I don't know if it's just got disposable income or what, um, or they're used to a lot of charts at their, their jobs or metrics at their jobs. And they just really resonate with that versus, you know, um, we have snowboarders and they, we just want to get an IMU and just, just put it in your pocket when you go and do your training run. Just just have this little tiny thing in your pocket because with an inertial measurement unit system, we can then at least measure the amount of jumps they're doing a day and the velocity at takeoff and some. But with the snowboarders, and these are the best motor snowboarders in the world, like they're going to win a bunch of medals in a few weeks. Like we, we can't get them to monitor a thing. Well, barely. <laughs> it's just not in the culture of the sport, right? Yeah. So. So it really depends. Um, we've made progress there because the athlete can see the outcome and can see the value of it. But um, yeah, so it's really sport specific, culture specific, and then individual specific as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes sense. What about also, you know, is it true that kind of the subjective training metrics can be just as good as high tech training metrics? So I think it depends a little bit on the context of the situation and the question that you're trying to answer. But generally, absolutely, I believe in many instances, subjective training metrics like a rating of perceived exertion mm-hmm. skill, one to 10, when applied in a standardized fashion, consistently and over prolonged enough periods, mm-hmm. um, in a collaborative fashion with an athlete and coach can be incredibly, incredibly effective over time. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and, and I will say I purposely used in combination and collaboration with the coach and athlete. I, I like to use the word collaboration on these things rather than compliance. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's a more um, positive and proactive word to use use with your athletes. But the simple RPE scale that Foster had come up with and that Steven Seiler has validated against laboratory measures as an internal load metric on a scale of 1 to 10 is an incredibly 
powerful metric that every single athlete can use across every single sport. Yes, we can get nuanced more about whether it's, you know, it's a perception internally for metabolic load or muscle load. And and there are some papers that have separated that out, but um, it is something that I use um, probably with almost every single athlete that I work with on some kind of level of an RPE internal load scale. And there's a couple of papers by Anna Saw um, and BJSM a bunch of years ago that have have validated and looked at how valuable um, these type of subjective training markers uh, can be. So if you're interested in the papers, uh, Saw, S-A-W et al. has a couple of uh, excellent reviews on this. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, I try to whittle down with a coach or an athlete one internal load metric and one key external load metric that's relative to their sport. So an external load metric might be your running pace or running velocity or the wattage on the bike and your internal load metric, it could be heart rate, it could be lactate, or it could be RPE. And within that sport, what what is the most ideal internal load metric and external load metric that is the easiest to consistently measure longitudinally over time with the lowest bearer of entry and the highest level of collaboration, um, formerly termed compliance. Stick on those two things that you can consistently get over time. And I mean, uh, you're in a really good, strong position to look at ebbs and flows of, of training, fatigue, training adaptation, and then interventions, whether that's sports nutrition uh, or altitude or, or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. We'll control training all the time with RPE scales when they go to altitude or just let's use your um, sea level heart rate or RPE to control speed when you first go into the heat or altitude as a way to to make sure athletes aren't um, uh, overdoing it when they say go into a new environment. So I'm a big fan of subjective, simple subjective monitoring. Yep. And for something like um, session RPE that you're talking about then, like some people will be familiar with this because they're already doing it or they might um see on training peaks you know when you upload your data there's i think it's a five point scale on training peaks from memory with a little smiley face and the sad yep. face um, and you know rate your session so how how do you describe i guess for the the athletes listening how would you describe to your athletes in terms of how they should think about that and and answer that kind of scale how do you, would you explain it to them yeah so in the foster scale it's got set words and they'll always, uh, whether it's a, a study or the athlete, they'll get the set words like um, rest, very, very easy, very easy, easy, moderate, you know, it, as it goes through. Um, you'll explain those that it's a, um, a linear scale. And so, you know, 10 is the hardest race or workout you've ever done in your life. You know, you might only score 10, you know, less than five times per year type of efforts. Um, you might get a lot of eights and nines. Um, I usually explain that uh, very purposeful recovery sessions should be in the two to three range or the one to two range. Your threshold sessions are going to probably be somewhere in the middle. Um, and indeed, uh, again, if you go to look at Steven Seiler's work, um, these are all validated. You know, the, the threshold range, I believe, was in that, that four to six or four to seven range in, in Seiler's uh, papers. And so we'll usually uh, take a, a bit of time to educate the athletes on, on what that is and then send them off. The other important distinction is, uh, 
you can have effort based on intensity, but also effort based on duration. Mm. And so um, it's okay that a 14-hour ultra marathon event is, um, even though blood lactate never gets over 2.5, is scored a 10. Mm. Just like it's okay that a 400-meter uh, hurdle race is also scored a 10. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's all relative to the specificity mm -hmm. of the event and the in intensity of the event. The one spot uh, or the area where sometimes the RPE scale will fall apart a little bit is in and around, I think, neuromuscular based events and neuromuscular fatigue and sprinting and repeated sprints um, and some of your weight room work um, where there is a little bit more of a disconnect on total amount of perception of effort versus um, what the outcome might be in terms of neuromuscular um, fatigue or, or muscle soreness two or three days later. A very fit middle distance runner, for example, um, could do a whole bunch of uh, just negative squats in the weight room. Mm. Say, oh, that, that was super easy. My heart rate was down and didn't feel too bad as a two out of 10. And then, you know, they could barely walk two days later yeah. because of the eccentric muscle damage. And then the one other area that you need to consider is that um, I, I think in some instances, especially in middle distance to long distance, the RPE scale might need to be exponentially weighted. And there's a really nice paper actually by Australian Rowing a bunch of years ago where they use a weighted scale on the RPE. So you can probably better mathematically model what load actually is because, um, you know, running for an hour and going from a one to two is probably a lot different than running for, for an hour and going from just eight to nine. Both of, both of them are one unit changes, but it that eight to nine or eight to 10 is going to be exp exponentially uh, uh, greater in terms of just overall fatigue. So, so there's some pieces there that you need to consider, but just starting with under, better understanding your own perception of effort uh, in the training that you're doing is an excellent place to start. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So I guess um, going more specifically now in terms of data collection and, and its role in regards to nutrition, do you find either yourself or nutrition practitioners that you work with are now making more use of athlete collected data um, to assist the strategies in terms of, of nutrition? I guess now compared to let's say 10 years ago um, and do you find that that's because there's now better kind of data that's become available? Yes and no. I, I think first uh, with a huge amount of humility, I, I think we all need to really accept the fact that um, the nutrition field is incredibly nuanced mm. and perhaps more nuanced than any of the other sports science or sports medicine disciplines outside of mental performance. Um, like if you, if the three of us were just going to take some time here and brainstorm all the confounders and moderating factors as, to something as simple as energy intake, we could probably come up with a list of 40 or 50 pretty quickly, mm -hmm. you know, just, in and around activity and perception and social and restraint and cost of food and drug interactions. And, um, you know, you, you see studies uh, where people go out to eat and whatever's ordered first influences your food, energy intake mm. and food decisions subsequent to that. 
mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Then we got to think about behavior change and behavior change science um, in terms of outcomes and nutrition and behavior wheels that I've, I've been trying to read more on recently. So yes, sports nutrition is very nuanced and complex, but I do think that there are more and more emerging field based technologies that have been applied in sports nutrition the last 10 years. And, and I think that there's new opportunities uh, in the future. Um, and so very serendipitously, and I, I, I'm going to shamelessly plug an article that's going to come out um, soon um, it, uh, at the European College of Sports Science, uh, the, the conference they had last summer, I think it was, a few of us spoke uh, and, and a few of us have written an article called New Opportunities to Advance Sports Nutrition. And it's actually an article on technologies and innovations that, that may advance us going forward. And it was written by, um, co-written by uh, Kirsten uh, Janovic out of um, Norway, Michelle King, Ian Rolo, Yanis Pizzolatis, and, and myself. And it's just been accepted to um, to Frontiers. And, and we do highlight some advances in this space. So obviously there's simple things like that existed already, like urine specific gravity. I mean, there's, there's ebbs and flows to the accuracy of that and when you should do it. But there's elements like urinary ketone assessment that have been validated. Um, there's new validated approaches to micro um, fluid technologies integrated into patches that you can take off an arm to get sweat rates, um, sodium content of sweat rates. Obviously things like DEXA are becoming more and more available and prevalent. So you can get bone mineral density and body composition outcomes, um, better estimates, gold standard estimates of, um, uh, of resting uh, uh, expenditure when coupled with metabolic cart measurements. Um, even things like double labeled water for total daily energy expenditure are becoming more and more uh, inexpensive and readily available to use in athlete models. And it's not, it's not that invasive. It's, it's some urinary collections and, and yes, it needs to be sent off to an isotope lab, but um, I think in the future, we're going to start to see more of, more of that being able to be um, uh, implemented in practice. There's power meters, and then there's both basic and advanced integrated activity monitors. So heart rate, GPS, accelerometry, core and skin temperature measures that can be integrated into into single devices now. And um, some of this was actually um, implemented at the Tokyo Olympics in some of the athletes. And so with all of those types of things, and there's there's more that that we've listed in this article, they all have the potential to help give information to a sports nutrition practitioner and their client and their athlete to make better informed decisions over time. Um, It just needs to be delivered in such a way that the information um, can be handled appropriately and probably integrated um, slowly and and very purposely rather rather than um, ad hoc. So yeah, there's a lot there. Um, I, I thought a little bit about that, and and again, we a bunch of us were writing an article on that piece, so it was very uh, top of mind for me. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, and do you see, I guess, any common myths or misconceptions about how athlete data relates to nutrition? Yeah, I think 
We're still miles away from being able to accurately measure energy intake and expenditure. And so all your apps that are trying to predict calories or calorie expended or caloric intake, you better be taking with just a massive, big grain of salt Mm -hmm. and just really understanding that there, there are significant limitations there. And, and there are some validation papers against gold standards, like double labeled water to show that a lot of these apps, even at the very best apps are still, it depends either under or over reporting, reporting by two or 300, um, K cows, uh, mm-hmm. calories a day. And mm-hmm. that doesn't sound too much if you're, you know, at 3000 calories and, and I use this line a lot, but usually in a reds uh, discussion. And it isn't on on one day, two or 300 calories. But if you multiply that for a year, that's 100,000 calories you're out for the year. And that's that's a, just a massive amount of energy that's being misaccounted for. So mm-hmm. I would still be very careful in any of those types of um, apps and approaches and um, probably almost completely gone away with it in general practice just because of the measurement sensitivity issues and they usually require a lot of work to um, input all the information in the apps in the first place. Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, and would your approach to the use of data change if you're working with a non-elite athlete versus elite level athlete? I think it goes back to the answer I gave earlier. It depends on the culture of the sport and the level of engagement of the individual and the interest level of the non-elite athlete. Um, Honestly, sometimes they are even more motivated by technologies and are just as interested. And, and that might be because they don't have an entire team or coach around them. And most of our elite athletes that are in the Olympics or Paralympics, they're, they're like Australia, pretty well supported and they'll have a team and a collection of experts around them. But you're not elite athlete doesn't. And I think they enjoy the feedback and some of the um, specific uh, information that these devices can give. Um, whether it's validated or not, they, they need to understand that there's a risk to some of that information. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so is there any sort of, and you've probably highlighted this in the in the paper that will at a, at a link to when it comes out, is there any type of data that athletes can collect in their training or daily routine that you think is really underrated or underutilized? Uh, yeah, I struggled a little bit with this because it depends on the context of the athlete and their mm-hmm. environment. Um, but I really do fear that uh, we're just going to miss out on the uh, the good old conversation mm-hmm. and the ability to connect and see your athlete and the body language that they show walking up to practice or their yeah. communication tone and the way that they say something after training or after practicing hydration or, 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 or fueling after a long event. Um, those types of interactions are so incredibly valuable to create relationships and trust. Um, and they can never be replaced with gadgets and metrics and numbers. And again and again and again, the, the best and most winningest athletes I see are in a situation where they have a sound, intelligent 
training program, but it's not rocket science, but they are in a situation where they feel cared for. They, they might feel pushed, but they're feeling cared for. And they're in an incredibly trusting relationship with their team and their coach around them. And so, so again, um, apps and gadgets and data can't satisfy that. Uh, the good old conversation and, and human interaction does. And so we can never lose, uh, lose sight of that. And the pendulum will probably swing away from that. And, and then, you know, it'll, it'll come back and we'll, we'll end up understanding how important those interactions are. Mm, absolutely. So I guess bringing all of this together, I guess if we're thinking about, you know, the, the, well, whether they're recreational or elite sort of level runners, cyclists, triathletes, I guess if they're looking at the various bits of data that they're already collecting or maybe thinking about, you know, should I go out and collect additional data, whether it's through an app or whether it's a wearable device or something like that, um, I guess trying to answer that question of is it worth collecting, do you think that's more a matter of thinking what is the question I'm trying to answer or what is the use of this data, having that as sort of the first step and then going out and finding the best way to collect the data rather than going, there's this new gadget, I'm going to collect this data, or now what do I do with it? So rather thinking this is some information that might be useful to me, how do I get it kind of thing? I agree with you, Alan, and I think being purposeful for what your data gap is and what you want to achieve there, like what question are you trying to answer is the best way forward. Just, just stop and pause and, and better understand that. Um, most of your sleep experts would actually say, uh, if you're sleeping just fine and you integrate a sleep app, you're, you're more likely to disrupt sleep because <laughs> you're starting to over obsess about, about it. Yeah. Too much. Uh, you know, on the nutrition front, uh, over obsessing about food can send you down a very bad path towards orthorexia and other uh, disordered eating and eating disorders. And, and these apps will increase emphasis. Um, in some instances, some focus is probably required for a lot of people mm. for some mindfulness, but in others, um, it can create bad behaviors or obsessive behaviors, mm. right? So, mm. so there's a, there's a balance to all of these pieces um, mm. that are, are going to be tricky to navigate. And, but I think if you always go back to that question that you had there, Alan, or that I raised at the start, what are you trying to answer? And is it worth answering or what's the barrier to entry to answering this? Um, I have a lot of athletes that have used apps over time that just, it also just falls by the wayside because they, they get bored with it or the compliance or cooperation is, is too much to be able to uh, maintain it um, all the time over t and over long, long periods of time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you see this all the time with things like, you know, someone gets a Fitbit for Christmas or an Apple Watch or something like that. You know, all of a sudden they're, they're collecting all this data with this cool new gadget. And then after a while they're like, oh, well, what do I do with it? And then as you said, you know, three months later, they're not even looking at the data. It's not getting used for anything. It's just going somewhere in the cloud forever to, to go and gather dust. Yep. And that, that happens with the very best athletes in the world as, as well as all of us in between. Yeah. Yep. yep. Awesome. All right. So just to wrap it up, I don't think we need to sort of ask about where it's going in the future because you've sort of talked a little bit about that already, but I guess if you had a magic wand and you could create any new sort of device, training monitor, data collection app, what's the one thing that you'd love to be able to measure that you can't at the moment or measure better maybe, uh, and why? 
I thought of two things. <laughs> One would be able to non-evasively measure in real time the pleasure and reward centers of the brain. Mm-hmm. So we can do that now with fMRI where you go in the big magnet and we know carbohydrate mouthwash, for example, lights up the pleasure and reward centers of the brain. But being able to do that in the field in real time uh, with training and fatigue and nutrition interventions, I think it would just completely unlock a new avenue and a new approach to performance mm-hmm. um, of which nutrition would be involved for sure. Mm-hmm. And then the other one would be um, for anyone listening out there, you'll be rich if you can figure it out, some kind of validated app that through images and scanning and photos could actually quantified food calories and macros and micros with with just pictures. And I know that there's early generations of that and it's messy, but um, I mean that, that in our area of sports nutrition would be, would be a pretty special uh, type of uh, technology. Yeah, absolutely. And, And as you said, I don't think it's for a lack of trying. I can't remember how many research projects I've seen that have attempted to do that, but haven't, got too far unfortunately it's just a very complex thing to do and I remember there was a device doesn't exist anymore that was claiming that it could measure caloric intake from it was like a wristband that you wore or something I can't remember what it was called but yeah Hmm. based on some sort of measurement of biomarkers it was claiming to to be able to quantify macronutrient intake but yeah obviously never. it sounds mythical oh very much it sounds mythical everything mythical just instantly puts up my um my spine that was probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we are going to finish off with our bonus round now, Trent, where we find out a little bit more about you outside of apps and wearables and things like that. So our first question, if you could go back to the end of high school and start down a completely different career path, what do you reckon you'd do? Honestly, I don't know I would, but if you're really pushing me, probably something like a teacher or a counselor or, or something around human, human nature and human behavior. Yeah. Awesome. Um, one thing on your bucket list that you are yet to do. Uh, I haven't, um, actually tried surfing, snowboarding, skiing, but, uh, yeah. Uh, bodyboarding but i i haven't tried surfing and, and there is some surfing here on the island so i should in tofino i should uh should get up there and give that a go okay how, how how warm does the water get in summer there oh it's it's cold mate that's probably why i haven't done it <laughs> yeah and all the best waves are in january and february so it's right. uh, 11 celsius it's 11 celsius mm-hmm. surfing so it's Full hoodies full yeah um high industrial grade wetsuits yeah yep. it's like tasmania here people who go surfing down the south of Tasmania. All right. Um, Well, this probably actually covers the next question was what what was the sport that you want to try but you haven't had the chance? I think you've you've kind of covered that as well, Um, unless there's any other sports that are sitting there. No, uh, I think that that would be it. Yeah. All right. Um, Obviously, you were over in, in Tokyo for the Olympics last year with the Canadian team. Uh, and they had a lot of success, particularly on in, in track and field, where you do a lot of your work. What was your favorite moment from either the Olympics or Paralympics? Yeah, so we were able to earn six medals within Athletics Canada. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I believe it was the most successful game since 1930-something. Wow. And there was a uh, 
about a 30 hour period at the games where, where there were four medals won. Um, Evan Dunphy in the race walk, who's been to Australia lots of times. He was on our podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Great guy. Um, gold medal in the decathlon, uh, silver medal in the 5,000 and then a 200 meter, uh, gold. And so that, that run of medals was, was really exciting. But then I'll also highlight one other um, favored moment, and this is a behind-the-scenes moment. Um, if you've been to a few games, you know the uh, opening and closing ceremonies are five minutes of fun for six hours of standing in the bowels of the stadium. So <laughs> if you can get out of it, you just don't go. Yep. And so we, as a staff, sports science, sports medicine staff with Athletics Canada, I was able to procure some, um, some beer in the village on the last night and a room, and we just – watched the closing ceremonies uh having a few beers hanging out as a as a staff and just really uh winding down on that last night and our flag bearer for athletics canada was damian warner who won the olympic gold medal in the decathlon and a new olympic record and as a staff we did tons of work with him he's such a nice guy and and then I get a text from his coach that's like oh you're right this closing ceremony sucks where are you guys (laughs) I said, oh, we're on the seventh floor, corner room, having a few pints, swing by. And so they left. As soon as, as, soon as Damien carried the flag in, they're like, <laughs> they got out of there. And next thing I knew is I knew the coach was coming, but Damien showed up. And so there was about 20 of us. And I was like, oh, man, like, how cool is this? The Olympic gold medalist, flag bearer for Canada, comes to our little post party. And, and he hung <laughs> up for like 20 minutes. And I, you know, um, He's just so gracious and thanked us all for our work behind the scenes. And I'll always remember that. um, uh, Yeah. That moment of of us being able to be together. Yeah. Awesome. Great story. Yeah. Did you guys have a setup? Like I know the Australians had like those deck chairs kind of set up at the base of the apartment block to, and like these big screens up. Did you guys have something similar? Yeah. So they had an outdoor kind of um, picnic area. Um, We always have this big red moose that's there and then the, (laughs) The Brits of the Aussies steal it, and then we steal your kangaroo, and it's it's always a thing thing that's going on. And uh, yeah, there was some viewing areas, but it was much much minimized just because of COVID mm. and masks and being kind of stuck in, and um, they didn't want people congregating. And there, you know, uh, th- this Olympics was tough. It, I've been really honored to have been to a bunch of them and um it's probably the one i'm most proud of but it was also the one i was most wanting to come home from because Mm. it was it was tough behind the scenes and relentless and the athletes had to leave right away and you never left the olympic bubble once like man did i want to just leave and go have some local ramen noodles or or some local culture but you just you couldn't right Mm. and it's 35 Celsius with high humidity and you, you're, you're in a mask 24 seven. Um, and you always have that false positive or real positive hanging over your shoulder every single day when you're doing your COVID tests. So kudos to the athletes that were resilient and, and our staff that really worked hard behind the scenes, but it, 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 um, I'm always honored to go. It was great to go. I'm glad I got to go, but it, it was definitely a slug, uh, Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. And final question. Do you live by any piece of advice or motto? You know, I, I really don't other than um, like no model per se, uh, but I'm a big believer in surrounding yourself with people that are positive. Yeah. 
And there's a lot of choice that we all have in our lives to um, be positive and or surround ourselves with people that are uplifting. And um, uh, certainly as I've gotten a little older, I'm more aware of that. And uh, I try when possible to collaborate with people who like to have a laugh and like to have work hard and play hard, um, whether it's research or coaching or or, or the, the types of coaches and athletes I get to work with. So that would probably be my my key bit of advice. Yeah, awesome. Similar to uh, Louise's in a way, hey, Al? <laughs> yeah. yeah. What did, what did know, Louise say? You should, Louise yeah. said, uh, don't be a dick or something. Yeah, don't be a dick. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I love it. And it's tricky because, like, uh, you start to get pulled in all these ways and you uh, – 50% of your workloads doing stuff for other people that you're not even, especially Louise, she's so well-known, right? And yeah. at the end of it, I think, and I've said, Louise, you're late in your career now. Why don't you say more, no to more things and just yes to the, to the fun stuff with the fun people, right? So, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Trent. I think it's been a great conversation. As you said, a tricky one because a lot of this stuff is mm. kind of hard to, um, have a definitive Navigate. answer for, uh, but hopefully we've given people a, a few little practical tips and, and um, ways, I guess, of looking at things or, or trying to go about, you know, working out how you might use or, or not use um, data that you've, you've collected through various ways to, to support or, or provide feedback into your nutrition. So thanks so much for your time and, um, yeah, enjoy, enjoy your day over there. Thanks for having me on. Um, all the best. Thanks. That was great. Thank you very much, Trent. And um, I'm going to leave it to our summary guru, Al, um, just to, yeah, key points from, um, from Trent's um, discussion. Yeah, great to hear from Trent. And as you said, this is not, I guess, a straightforward area with straightforward answers necessarily. Um, there's a lot of nuance in here that we have to consider with any kind of data collection and particularly when we're using some of that data to then... Um, make some interpretations in regard to nutrition um, or, or feedback around nutrition. So I guess, first of all, you know, over the last probably 10 to, to 20 years with the rise of consumer products, um, that we've never been able to uh, capture as much data as we can now. So, you know, you've got your traditional metrics, which we've had for quite a while, things like heart rate, um, GPS, speed and distance kind of data, power meters for, for cycling and so forth. We've got apps, smartphone apps for measuring food intake, for example, um, or at least capturing food intake rather than measuring it. And then there's a whole bunch of subjective measures that we talked about. Um, you know, Trent mentioned, you know, RPE, so rating of perceived exertion, whether it's at any point in time or an overall session RPE, which is probably more useful in the context of what we're talking about today. Um, we can capture other things. Obviously, one of the things that we do a lot in the lab, Steph, and particularly in your PhD, is measuring gastrointestinal symptoms, for example. Um, but that can be done you know, day-to-day -day in training as well. And I'm sure you do that with some people who have gut problems, get them to rate them um, during exercise, and that can be valuable feedback. Um, also measures of fatigue and, and recovery and those kind of things as well. But, you know, no matter which way you um, sort of collect the data, whether it's subjective data via apps, whether it's wearables, whether it's, um, I guess, traditional monitoring devices, um, not all of the data that we capture is valid or reliable. Um, especially a lot of the commercial wearables that haven't been properly validated through the kind of rigorous 
testing process that you know traditional uh, monitoring tools have been developed through you know university research and, and those sort of things um, and then there's other tools that we know have known inaccuracies things like being able to measure energy intake um, being able to measure energy expenditure with the possible exception of power meters on a bike um, using heart rate and um, accelerometers and things like that you know we know that there's inaccuracies in those measurements and so we don't want to be too literal with our interpretation of that data because it's not to the sort of accuracy where being literal is of any value to us. I guess there's also a risk of uh, that so-called analysis paralysis. If we try and analyse too much and capture too much data, we're sitting there swimming in all this data and not knowing what to do with it. Um, and as we said with Trent, you know, really, uh, if we're thinking about capturing data, rather than just slapping on the latest device that's available to us and then worrying about how we use the data later, we're much better to formulate a question you know in a scientific way almost saying this is the information i want to know or need to know how am i going to find out that information what data do i need what's the what's the most uh, effective way to capture that information in terms of something that's one cost effective so i can afford to do it um, mm. but two is is valid and reliable is going to be really important so having that sort of question and then using that to decide how and what sort of data you're going to capture is a much better way than doing it the other way around and just putting on an Apple Watch or a Fitbit or whatever it is and then trying to figure out later how you use the information that it's giving you because the answer is you may not be able to use that information very usefully anyway. Um, there's also a risk, we talked a little bit about this, of uh, obsession with data um, and that can lead to negative thoughts or behaviours uh, and that can be things like food logging but it can be other data that people might capture as well um, and one of my favorite quotes I uh, no idea who to attribute it to it's just one of those common quotes in the business world that once a metric becomes a target it ceases to be valuable and I mm. think that is very true uh, for a lot of this data as well whether it's energy intake or expenditure data or, or any of those other things if we get too obsessed with it or try to sit, set this number and say we have to be at this number mm. um, all of a sudden the game becomes trying to achieve that number as opposed to mm -hmm. that number trying to give you feedback on, yeah. you know, in our case, nutrition practices, which is more what it's used for rather mm -hmm. than saying we have to hit this particular number because then your goal becomes trying to hit the number rather than trying mm -hmm. to get better as an athlete. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess before you spend the money and add more burden in terms of collecting and analysing data, we need to first ask ourselves what do I actually want or need to know? And then once we answer that question, then we say, well, how can I accurately get data that helps me answer that question? And then finally, how will this data change how, what, or how much I eat to complement my training? Because if the answer is the data is not going to change anything I actually do, then why are we collecting it? It's not actually adding any value to us. Um, so with that in mind, I guess there's a few different examples of things that, that we might do or, or things that... Um, that we might use as dietitians or nutritionists to provide feedback around nutrition. And these are things that people can do even without a dietitian or a nutritionist necessarily. Um, so we talked about session RPE, so that rating of perceived exertion, how hard the session was. So if you're changing a nutrition strategy at some stage for whatever reason, could be for all different reasons, um, looking at that session RPE relative to the type of session that it was might give us some feedback about where we're, whether we're fueling adequately or not. Now, it might not be the only reason that session RPE is changing. We need to consider things like sleep and what's going on in our personal lives and, and all sorts of things. You know, it's not specific to nutrition, but it might be a red flag for that. Um, we can use other data, things like power data, 
pacing data if we're running um, might add to that in terms of you know I normally do these intervals at this power or this pace but you know today I just couldn't for whatever reason and then you can work back from there and, and you know nutrition may be one of the possibilities behind that um, or you know if you notice that that your ability to produce that power over time is changing either getting better sort of you're on the right track or it's getting worse again it can be a I guess a a, a way to pause and reflect on whether nutrition might or might not be contributing to that. But it isn't definitive, certainly. Um, we can look at things like energy expenditure data from power meters uh, and look at the work completed in training peaks. And I like to use the, the weekly summary at the end of each week. So if you're pulling up your calendar view on training peaks um, on, the, on the desktop app, you can look at the summary in the far right column there at the amount of work done. And you can see if that's sort of creeping up over time well, am I compensating by, by eating a bit more from a nutrition point of view? Or if that's going down because I'm injured or going through a sort of a recovery period or whatever, um, then maybe I need to think about, you know, the other way with nutrition and potentially pulling back and, and avoiding over overfueling at times where it's not required. Uh, and then finally, some of the other data that might be specific to certain circumstances, we just talked about gastrointestinal symptoms before, and, you know, we've done a, a whole podcast around that. Uh, we've also talked about things like sweat testing and sweat composition testing um, and also fluid balance assessments to look at sweat rate and that kind of thing. So they might be um, sort of data collections that we don't do constantly, but things that we pull out and use for a short period of time to give us feedback because we're trying to plan for something or, you know, we've changed and we want to get some feedback around how that change is, is working out. Uh, and then finally, we might do some food logging um, and it may not even be to look at the calories, which is what people tend to focus on. It might be looking at the carbohydrate numbers. Um, and it might even be looking at you know, the topic of last week, that carbohydrate periodization, and just looking at, am I stacking that carbohydrate around the training sessions in the way that I think I am? And so it can give you some feedback there. So, you know, food logging doesn't have to be about logging everything that you eat every day. It might just be logging what you're eating for dinner around certain training sessions to try and figure out, am I eating enough in, for those training sessions? And am I pulling it back at those training sessions where I don't need to? So, um, yeah, you don't have to use food logging in the traditional sense. It can be used for, for other things as well. Um, but just being aware that, that that process does tend to underestimate not only calories but carbs and everything else along the way so we just need to be aware that that could be a slight underestimate awesome good summary our good summary as always um and we've got to follow up on this one to give a bit of practical um insight um and how a coach and athlete um works with with um data testing um and interprets that data uh, so same question um, so it's episode 30b how can my training data help my nutrition uh, we are joined by Stephen Lane yep absolutely so Stephen Lane or Dr Stephen Lane is a, um, a cyclist himself but also a cycling coach uh, comes from a sports science background um, and most people uh, in the cycling scene in Australia particularly in Victoria um, will know Stephen pretty well so um, yeah, looking forward to catching up with him. Another person I used to work with a bit, but haven't for a few years. So be good to catch up. Awesome. Can't wait. So we will leave you all in peace for now, um, but we'll see you um, next week. Will do. See you, everyone.